did. I did the cool new intro. Oh, it sounded like the uh, middle intro. No, I don't have my headphones on anymore, so that's why I don't know. Cool new intro. Um, all right, so we are back. We are going to finish our best of the last 20 years list. The top 10. The big Who ones. has the coin? I don't know. I don't remember where we stopped off on. So me, you, me, you, me. You have the coin. You, me, you. Where is it? Me, you. So this would be me now. Uh, it's right here. Oh, okay. I don't know why I actually have to do the math on that. Obviously, we've done 10 of these, so <laughs> come back to me. The coin of destiny, the 2019 War of the Pacific coin. We're yep. still enjoying some uh, Still Hill Ooh. nut on the hill beer. You have an Imperial Stout Trooper from uh, two weeks ago, Tom. That, that beer is old now. Yes, it's a very old beer. Not from that episode we recorded earlier today. No, no, no. No, no, no. Not from three hours ago. All right, Tails. Tails. You may select. All right. Um, I, uh, I'll go first. Um, my number 10 is a documentary oh. from 2012, um, directed by Sarah Polly. Uh, Stories We Tell. Can you describe the whole story in your own words? What? <laughs> <laughs> the entire story. I guess I better pee first. <laughs> I'm interested in the way we tell stories about our lives. About the fact that the truth about the past is often ephemeral and difficult to pin down. Well, I guess if you could start by describing Mom in as much detail as possible. My memory of Mom is she was a fun person at parties, that she laughed loud. Michael was a private person, and Diane was not a private person. She yearned for more. She was very warm, you know, full of life. But I do think it's really interesting to look at this one thing that happened and how it's refracted in so many different ways. What I overheard was Mom saying that she was pregnant and that she wasn't sure who the father was. I haven't seen this. You haven't seen Stories We Tell? No, I haven't seen this. Gotta see Stories We Tell. Um, I keep at the hearing that. What? I keep hearing that. I oh, really? I got around to it. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, um, she tells her father who is in a recording studio um, reading from a manuscript that Sarah Polly wrote about her, um, her childhood and her parents' relationship and her relationship to uh, some other people in her life that, you know, uh, we will get to, I guess. Um, she says, her dad asks her what he's doing and she says it's an interrogation. It's, and she kind of explains what she means by interrogation. Um, but she doesn't explain it fully because it's uh, extemporaneous and it's just in the moment and it's just being recorded because it's a documentary. But um, what is really being interrogated here is not just um, her family or her mother and father in their relationship. It's not just her relationship to the man that she has recently discovered as her actual birth father and not her, um, which is not her father. Um, it is an interrogation between the filmmaker and the viewer as I don't, you know, I should put the spoiler alert thing here. Um, spoiler alert. There is a lot of stock footage in this film. All most of that stock footage is fake and you don't realize that it's fake until the end of the movie. When you see Sarah Polly doing makeup on who you thought to be her mother and, um, her giving stage direction to the people that you thought were her brother and sister and all this other stuff. Um, it is a conceptual documentary piece about how 
we claim our own personal narrative for ourselves. And in this movie, there is um, moments where the her um, her her what she understands to be her father, who is not her birth father, um, tries to take ownership of this story. Um, there's moments when her birth father, who she's only like recently connected with when the movie is being shot, uh, tries to take ownership for the story. There's where her brothers and sisters try to kind of take ownership for the story. There's where friends of the family try to say like, um, Sarah Polly's mother was like this and she didn't care about this. And she, she did this thing and she was this type of person when another person would say she was the opposite. Um, it is a movie like catfish or a movie like stupid three identical strangers. Um, but with a, a real true idea. It's not sensationalistic in any way. It is a true um, intellectual work of art analyzing how we create identity out of our what we perceive to be our history and what we perceive to be our autobiography. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of it's kind of a mind blowing um piece of filmmaking so um again everyone everyone check out stories we tell i think it's on hulu what's interesting is i actually we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about how you thought um a more might show up on my list Mm -hmm. and away from her was actually the one that almost was on my list oh really sarah polly because away from her just was just a stunning film for me yeah kind of like a real take on you know, dealing with the, the disease and aging and whatnot. Mm-hmm. She's a she's an amazing filmmaker. Yeah, she's, oh yeah, she's incredible. Um, like take this waltz, which isn't like a film I would particularly respond to. Is still like the way in which she's able to tell that narrative is mm-hmm. just is great. So I, I don't know. I just never got around the stories we tell, but I guess there's no excuse. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, you did spoil it for me. Fuck. But it's the journey. <laughs> I did. It's I did also journey. have seven years to catch up with it. Um. My number 10 is shocking to me because I don't respond to this movie. I think it's fun. I think it's really entertaining. Um, it has a score, which I still listen to, but it's, it's very much a score I find typical. But everyone around me responds to it with Marvel. You included. Um, and it is a movie that has... Uh, beyond all else, I think, single-handedly for the 2010s, set the tone of film, um, at least in tentpole films. Um, it is the 2010 Christopher Nolan film Inception. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Mr. Cobb has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. What kind of work placement? Not exactly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so happy that this made my list. <laughs> oh, this is a great movie. Um, I am. 
Yeah, I I enjoy it. I don't love it. I think it's a lot of fun. But when a movie... I saw this movie with my mom. I went to go see it with my mom. She was excited for it. And like, she was like speechless afterwards. And yeah. my mom isn't speechless for movies. Um, and people I talk to who aren't movie people, when they talk when i know i do like a film podcast one of the films they mention like early on in that conversation is almost always inception Mm -hmm. um it is that film and it you look at movies that would come after it like dr strange rips it off oh yeah um with that city bending scene but like it sets the tone for what would become the blockbuster it is the jaws of our time Mm. um you know, it is the Jurassic Park of the decade. It's interesting because people, I don't... And Dark Knight, I'm not Christopher sure. Nolan has had two yeah. decades of having the film of the, the the blockbuster of the decade. I'm not sure if people understand oh, that, Nolan's per se. The, Christopher Nolan's the Steven Spielberg of our time. But better. But like, yeah, but I mean like, people have people called Christopher Nolan that yet? No, they just call him Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's Spielberg. Because he hasn't made all the garbage that Steven Spielberg made when he wasn't making good movies. No, he just has to make more movies about time. About time manipulation. He has a lot more to say about how to manipulate time. <laughs> the great thing about like the Tenet trailer that we watched when Rise of Skywalker was on and my kids were watching, they're just like, did that car go backwards? And I was like, they're in it. They're in. They're in the <laughs> Nolan bubble. <laughs> they didn't also ask, why does Robert Pattinson have a weird hair color? No, they didn't. No, um, they didn't. But no, this, it's, it, you know, blockbuster films have kind of lost that ability to be stunning um, for me a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Independence Day was Agreed. probably the last film where I was like blown away by the special effects. But this is, this was like the one where I was like, okay, I see that. And mm-hmm. just because it wasn't, because it went to a new level of special effects, it just presented the special effects you'd seen forever in a new light, you know, with right. its manipulation of time, with its and its its mixture of practical effects with the floating kind of room sequence, the, the spinning rotating room sequence, or the um, M. C. Escher style staircase fight. Uh, you know, it, you saw things that you knew were possible for CGI and and visual effects, but that like weren't being done. Mm. Um, and you know it just was there and it felt different because yeah. it was you could sense its practicality and it was a Hans Zimmer score like doing Hans Zimmer stuff but it was it was also felt different well it just kicked ass yeah <laughs> that was that was the difference um I'm flipping yes alright heads is tails oh um why don't let's snake it ah, why don't I go first that's not we, snaking. We don't want to talk about this. I'm sure you don't want to talk about this a lot. Um, we're talking about this later on our list. My number nine is the 2011 Terrence Malick film Tree of Life. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. We're be grown before that tree is tall. 
takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. Come on, hit me. Hit me. Come on, son. He's afraid of you. You expect things that a mulling adult can accomplish. I've just always wanted you to be strong. Be your own man. Um... No, at least it's later on the list. I thought you meant like you just assumed it was on my top twenty, and I'm like, it is not. On no, my no, top no, no. I definitely did not. I assumed a lot of movies were in the top twenty. This is not one of them. Um, I've got a, I've got a block here of movies where um, I talked about intentionality, where the filmmaker involved seems to be. I don't want to say it's their perfect movie. But it seems to be that they took everything that they had ever learned about making movies and put them all into a movie. Um, This is uh, the most spiritual of those um, films. It is probably the most spiritual experience I've ever had in, like, watching a film. Um, But it's not really... Even though it's Terrence Malick, it's not, like, a religious experience. He has the ability to turn like everyday things into like religious artifacts. He has the ability to turn like a living room into like a church or like, you know, Brad Pitt just kind of quietly whispering to his new baby into like, you know, a sermon or a liturgy or something like that. And then, so everything that happens outside the home in this film is like the wild. You know what I mean? Where like, things get stuck in trees and the wind blows too hard. And like, you know, when um, the kid is walking down the street later in the film, after he does that thing in, in the girl's underpants, which we'll stop there. We'll talk about it more later. Um, there's like a feral quality to him. And even in like the whole film in and of itself is just, is just like a, it's like a beast, you know what I mean? It's just, it's like untamed, it's untethered. It has this glorious beginning section where it's like the birth of the world. And there's so dinosaurs. You showed your kids, right? I showed them. That part, and the they kids. loved it. They loved the dinosaurs. And they're like, well, I keep watching it. And you're like, I don't think you can. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to take responsibility for whatever choice you make. Um,. It just really, it's like a... And that started your son's obsession with Jessica Chastain. Like, <laughs> every boy's obsession with Jessica Chastain. I'm you, convinced everyone. We've watched Zero Dark Thirty like a hundred times. Um, a lot everyone of people are watching Megan Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's not a lot more I need to say about Tree of Life. It's it's an amazing film. It's almost just indescribable. It's just, you know what movie it is? It's Tree of Life. Just read... We'll be, talk, we'll be talking. Yeah, just read Roger Ebert's review of it if you really need something. Go ahead, number 10. My or number, number nine, nine, we're also going to be talking about a lot because it's on both of our Pivotal Films lists, and we haven't talked about it at all. What? Uh, and the only reason it's my number nine is because the, I wanted to make the top list a film that you kept coming back to and back to and back to. And this is a film, I think, for most people, I, I would exclude myself, um, you can only see once. Mm. It fucking changes you, but you can only see it once. That is the 2000 Darren Aronofsky film, Rec Room for a Dream. Oh, yeah. Purple in the morning, blue in the afternoon, orange in the evening. Just like that. One, two, three, four.
which I, I, I thought, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up later in this discussion. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm surprised. I didn't put any Aronofsky on my, my list. Was it just like a personal choice? You feel like you couldn't? Was it because of Noah? You were just so confused about Noah? Should I put Noah on my list? I, I don't know. It, it didn't. It didn't feel right compared to other things. It felt too. It's the same. I I felt the same way about Florida Project that I did about Requiem for a Dream, where it just all seemed the filmmaking seemed too raw, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't judge objectively how good it was. And my point to that is is the reason it's here, but not not higher, is the fact that every once again, like talking about Inception. Most people I've talked to have seen Requiem for a Dream. They're torn apart by Requiem oh for a God. Dream. Yeah. But they never want to come back to Requiem for a Dream. I'm I'm I I'm I love it. I it's I it wrecks me every single yeah, time I see it. And I our, just wreck it. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. obviously an important film to both of us because it's on both of our pivotal sure, sure, films sure, sure, list. Sure. And I think it's is it the one movie on both of our pivotal films list that we haven't talked about yet? That like it's on both. I think it's on the no. one. There's two more. There's three left. I think. Okay, but this is a a big one. Yeah. Um, and there's not much to say. Like we're gonna dig into this. There's there will be hours to come. Of it's a fucking experience, man. It's it's heavy. Yeah. Um. But it is the the top Arnofsky film for me still. Hmm. Uh, maybe that's why I didn't put it on too, because I'm very conflicted about what that means. Also, hmm. yeah. between that and, and Mother, I'm not. I'm, and Black Swan, and, you're, you're, no, you're I hate. love Black Swan. Ready? I'm ignoring you. Yeah. <laughs> Heads. Shit. One of us has to get up. It is. It is. It is heads. Oh, um, you know what? Let's do the same thing. I'll go first because I know you don't want to talk about this movie. It is uh, Michael Gondry's 2004 movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. In my list of my trio here of against the wall filmmaking, uh, this is the middle one. Um, you know, it's Michael Gondry, so he's using all of his like quirky tricks and gimmicks and stuff to to uh, to draw out what I think ultimately is um, some pretty uh, complex emotions that come with thinking about the idea that you for a second thought you had saved your own life and then you realize much later you know several years later months later whatever that you that you haven't done that at all um it's one of these films that i've i've said the words directly but i meant to is that this film is cast perfectly um 
even down to Elijah Wood, um, who is playing the perfect douchebag. Um, it, it, uh, Kristen Dunst is great in this, too. Well, so that's one of the things I love about Which this movie. Which is weird to me that I love Kristen Dunst. So one of the things I love about this movie is that he's picked people that seem to embody um, the nature of the characters. So he figured out who Kirsten Dunst's character was. You know what I mean? She's this, like, wide-eyed, very naive, like, in love with the world. She's reciting poetry. Um, and they just... she He found who this person... Who the best actress to play that wasn't? It just is Kirsten Dunst. You know what I mean? Tom Wilkinson is... Who was having a moment back in, like, the 2002 to 2005... In the bedroom? Exactly. Um, he's, like, perfect for that... I've discovered this amazing thing, but I also know that it sucks and then has like a, all these consequences attached to it. He's the perfect guy to do that. In the bedroom almost was on my list. I, I think uh, I, I, it, it wasn't. It was. I on, thought you hate in the bedroom. I love in the bedroom. Oh, okay. It was on my long list. Yeah, it was on my long. But it wasn't like yeah. Um, you hate little children. I hate little children. <laughs> it's not on your list, is it? No, no, no. Oh. Oh, thank God. This is gonna get number one. Here's the two movies that would make this this process contentious. If I put Million Dollar Baby on my list and you put Little Children, when I get contentious, I just don't like it. No, come on. I think it's a bad movie. Um, the score is 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 the same. It's perfect. It's like who's 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 John Bryan? Okay, so it's like the perfect mix of like elegy and mystery and like. Like joy, weirdly, you know what I mean? Because everyone loves everything in this movie. Like they just have all these experiences, and they're all great, and they internalize all the moments of it and all the different things. You know what I mean? Like the way the ice, and that's the great thing about this movie is that there's a lot of. So you talked about a lot with Inception, with like physical effects and stuff like that. There's a lot of practical effects in this too, and he uses little sensual things to kind of steer the emotions of this film. So you know. The Barnes and Nobles, you go to Barnes and Nobles and the books look different. Or, like, the faces look different. Or um, Clementine doesn't know him anymore. Or, you know, what the ice looks like, what the ice feels like, like the breath coming out of their mouth. And then, just like the guy who we're going to talk about in the next, like, um, my number seven, um, he uses lighting to like changes the lighting all the time to convey a, like a specific kind of emotion or a specific kind of energy. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a really wonderful film. We're going to, we're going to talk about it later. Um, but it's weird to think about. And if you think about it, whether you like this film or not, there's not a lot of movies that have existed in the last 20 years that are anything like this movie. There's actually not a lot of movies that have existed. He tried, like, ever. Henry tried to, like, yeah. do it. Be like, Kind, be kind Rewind, Rewind was a... Was a, I mean, I'm happy to have the most Def Jack Black movie in existence, um, but this movie is, like, a singular statement. It's a singular film. Like, The Science of Sleep a little bit, too. Even though I don't think he directed that. I think he produced it. He directed Science of Sleep. Did he direct Science of Sleep? Almost positive. Yeah. Okay. But it's the same it's the same thing. It's taking all of these things that he does really, really well, and it doesn't work as well as it worked here. What if I have that Gail Garcia Burnell? He does stuff. I feel like I see him all the time in other things. Um but yeah, this is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, whatever you think about it, is like a singular Oh, kindergarten f- teacher. I forgot he did that movie. Is it? 
that's true. Um, yeah, we watched that. Um, it's a singular film. So, all right, number eight. Uh, what? Go. On. Why, right. do you, why do you think I don't respond to that movie though? Like that movie's on everyone's like top list because and it contains nothing to me. Because past all the gimmicks, it's actually it's the same thing with the Lynn Ramsey film. You have all these things that they do. Michael Gondry just does things. But attached to those things are really deep emotions. And those... So Lynn Ramsey's not necessarily attaching emotions to things. She's attaching ideas that represent emotions to things. Mm. So there's like a visceral emotional quality to this stuff. You have to respond to the Jim Carrey voiceover at like early in that morning... In the very opening scene of the film, when he's like narrating why he's not getting on that train, and you have to link the feeling he's conveying to like what the sky looks like the hazy, almost like snow impending sky. And then he gets on that train, and like what it feels like to get on a train, you know what I mean? To just like run on a train and to sit down and to take out your book and to start working on whatever. And then like the emotion that comes with like seeing somebody who you're like attracted to or that looks familiar or you just want to keep looking at on that train. It's not just kind of, it's not representative of like a symbol. It's not symbolic. It's emotional. And we've talked about this before. You seem to like emotions, like the raw emotions of film seem to be something that you are like, you've put up like a dual lightsaber force field against. You're pushing back against the lightning bolt fingers of emotion. Fair. Is it fair? I don't know. That might be fair. Throwing yeah. it out there. I did cry at a with that Adam Sandler movie though. So the remote one. Click, click. Yeah. So who knows? We've also talked about that a bunch too. Who the hell knows? <laughs> My number eight is Click. <laughs> Could you imagine? That'd be great. Uh, no, my number eight is a movie that was already on my pivotal film list. Um, it is the best animated. I have one more animated-ish movie on my list, but this is by far the best um, animated film of the past 20 years in terms of just being a pure cinematic masterpiece. Um, I guess you could probably just, on three, we could probably say it at the same time, and I assume you'd know what I'm talking about. It is Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away um, from 2001. It's just, it's, we talked about this uh, on my list. Um, It's just a movie that makes you feel like a kid again and it is perfect in everything it's doing it mm-hmm. is a, a storytelling masterpiece mm-hmm. um, it's one of those it's, I, there's not much to say about it because I feel as though everyone responds to Spirited Away in the same way even people I know who haven't seen a lot of movies but have seen Spirited Away love Spirited Away it yeah. just is everything you could want in a film. Yeah, it's amazing. Is it show up, is it yeah. Show up, it's okay. Yeah. Um, whose turn is it? Uh, it would be your turn. Okay. Tails. It is Tails. Okay. 2007, I've often said is, um, for me, one of the best years in film. Uh, a movie high up on my list is, is from 2007. Um, this movie, that movie does not show up on my list here. Uh, its biggest competitor of the year is here. Uh, my number seven is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 There Will Be Blood. 
You seem happy. You seem happy. I'm that just, made it. You know what I'm excited about Mario is that we're getting into the point of our lists that like this is a reality. We're gonna talk about there will be blood. <laughs> we're gonna have a long conversation about there will be blood. And I'm very excited. Not on my not on my list. <laughs> no, no, no. But like we'll get to mine and we'll be forced to. Yeah. Um. This is a movie I don't particularly like. Really? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't respond to it. Um, I think Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano blow the lid off of it in terms of performances. Um, I think that the Johnny Greenwood score is amazing, and I think Robert Ellis amazing. And I think like this is an amazing film, but I don't enjoy watching it hmm. for some reason. But that's why it's here. It's because I can see this movie and not respond to it emotionally, but I can realize that this is a fucking piece of art. Mm. It's a masterpiece. Um, you know, No Country for Old Men is on my pivotal film list, obviously, really high up there. I'm a Coen Brothers guy, have we said, but No Country for Old Men has those inherent flaws that make it into a personal masterpiece for me, but don't make it a cinematic masterpiece. Like, there will be blood is is that film you kind of watch with like stalker or whatnot um mm. and, and put on that level yeah. of just like this is what you want to do like you don't want to replicate this but you want to have this ability to express whatever cinematic voice you have in this way mm. in in your way you know like don't do this because you will fucking fail yeah. but <laughs> like do something that is that earnest and honest to yourself yeah even though it is a movie that takes place you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, it feels incredibly modern. It, You could have told me that it takes that, you know, Daniel Plainview is just a crazy man in 2006 who found some oil and mm. found some other crazy people. And there was like a village situation. And I would have believed it because it feels very modern. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people today call it like an indictment on George W. Bush, which I don't believe at all what who says that there's been some reviews it's like oh it's a commentary on the george w bush presidency it's 100 <laughs> uh, would never make a movie that's a commentary on any <laughs> presidency at all maybe like the taft presidency <laughs> yeah exactly something <laughs> like that um the grover cleveland like cancer scare no he would do like an adaptation of doris kern's goodwin like the bully pulpit or something was that the name of the book yeah yeah, yeah. the taft um teddy roosevelt book yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. she'll do he'll do that or like uh like like the oh god what the hell is the like death of a president for garfield or like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah he would do something like that he'll um, do die hard six the chester a arthur story i'd watch it that'd be good but this is um you know, this this breathes and, and, and lives Paul Thomas Anderson um, in a world that was so separated from what you'd seen from Paul Thomas Anderson to that point. And it's, like I said, a movie I don't like. But I look at it and I'm like, that's a fucking movie. That's perfect. It's a perfect movie. Yeah. Well, I think it's, oh, I think the idea that it's different than every other Paul Thomas Anderson movie up to that point it, is really fascinating. I'm guessing we're going to talk about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my number seven is a movie that we already talked about. It is... Uh, uh, Fernando uh, Morales' uh, City of God. Um, and we talked about it on your list. We talked about it on this list. We're going to talk about it on my list later. Um, it is moving from the cerebral nature of Tree of Life to the dreamlike qualities of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This movie literally feels like you have been shot in the foot. No. And have just been... 
<laughs> and then left there. And that you become a seven-year-old. Um, the other thing that I thought I think is fascinating about this movie, and um, it didn't occur to me when we were talking about it, but I watched it since then. Uh, I was thinking about it. It almost seems like after the introduction, where in the slums, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it almost plays like a play where there's mm. this huge set, you know what I mean? Where there's just this massive city set that's going on. And after a while, you can almost kind of tell where everything is. And like the way that these people, these characters move through the streets and, you know, you can almost see, you know who everybody, like the names of all the characters. If you don't know the names of all the characters, you know which crew they belong to. You know whose turf is what. And it's just this this massive, it's almost like a diorama or like a a living tableau or something where he's just placed these people in place and they're just going to act out their parts and there's like an inevitable what, what movie did we talk with you just talked about about inevitability um but there's like an inevitability i was talking about two popes oh okay two popes um yeah yeah yeah. there's no again my god same good thing. <laughs> there's an inevitability to everything that's happening here where he set this up so perfectly that like the the where rocket goes from the moment we meet him where camera turns around you know what i mean mm-hmm. is almost seems like it's it's going to like establish the fate of like everybody else in this in whatever is happening here um this drama this um whatever and it is it is one of the most viscerally felt films that i've ever that i've ever experienced and again the same thing with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He's not doing any tricks. He's not doing any CGI tricks here. He's just changing the light. You know what I mean? Yeah. So at the dance party, when... Um, oh, what's his name? Oh, I can't think of his oh, name. right, right, right. Um, so when Little Z, um, you know, is looking for Benny at the party, and... You know, he pulls all the way back to this weird shot where it's just a spotlight on little Z as he moves through this crowd of people that are all dancing and having fun. It is a it is it is not even documentary footage, you know what I mean? It is amateur film stock. It is just people it is someone that is just perched high up in the crowd with a camera, a film camera, and is just like panning around and there's a guy who has a spotlight on him. It is a, a Completely and utterly thrilling film experience. Um, we will talk about it a lot more. I don't think there's a lot of reason to like belabor this point. City of God is a great fucking movie. Um, who's... I don't know who's... Flip? Contradicting that. Yeah, Flip. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, nobody's contradicting it. Is there somebody out there that thinks like City of God's a real piece of garbage? That person's got to be somewhere. Probably Armand. Probably Mitch, hates it. Mitch McConnell. He probably hasn't seen it. Maybe he loves it. Maybe we're all wrong about Mitch McConnell. <laughs> this is one of his good movies. Tales. Tales it is. Uh, um, you go. Uh, so my most represented year on this list is 2017, which came as a real shock to me. Maybe, maybe it was the year of those movies that just like set off the, uh, the need to do this podcast for me. Hmm. Because I know 2017, like, when I watched those movies, like, 2017 was the year where I started yep. making this list. 2017 was a, was a big, big year, year. For, for me as well, yeah. Yeah. 
And interestingly enough, once again, this is a movie I didn't particularly respond to. But you definitely did. And um, it's a movie, once again, that coming back to it, when I first saw it, I just didn't respond to it at all. And I, I convinced myself it wasn't that good of a movie. And then when you put it on your list and I rewatched it and then you had the conversation about the way you felt with it and the way it presented itself, mm -hmm. I kind of understood it more. Um, I still didn't respond to it, but I respect its dreamlike quality and its meditation on memory. <laughs> I just, I just Why like you're looking at me like that. No, because you get the smile on your face of excitement. Um, it is uh, Luca Gagnino. Gagnino's uh, Call Me by Your Name. Oh my god, I love this movie. Did you expect this to be? I, I figured you would not expect this to have been on my I list. I actually did expect it to be on your list. Really? I thought it would be like very low. Like in 19 or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Because one of the things I, I really love about this podcast is like we can talk about stuff and then like you can see in either direction like I don't know if you can see it in me or I can see it in you when like the light goes on. It's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I still, I still don't respond to it emotionally. We talked for Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind that maybe I just have this emotional blockade, ladies, <laughs> um, that prevents me from feeling things. They want to fix that, ladies. <laughs> you can Jada Stevens it anytime you want. Uh, but this is a movie that is earnest it, it, on my list of you know of the 20 like this is the r most earnest movie it feels like a r real reflective film mm -hmm. it feels super personal it feels like he Luca kind of just vomited out his heart on this um it's it's raw. It, it, it fits perfectly next to Happy as Lazaro, for me, in terms of like those two films like existing as this real raw, loose but scared sort of examinations of a big life filtered through the eyes of immaturity still and mm -hmm. childhood, um, and and not really understanding what the world is and and that's what this is it's just it, it feels it's a big ideas presented by you know a m developing mind um there's still like the weird predatory nature of it to me that that, that is, is bothersome that's a um, new, yeah that's a like a new critique of it also finally i cr made that critique from moment one <laughs> well there's a lot of people that were just excited that it existed and then because after we saw that movie like i came to you and i was like isn't it kind of creepy that this, like, grad student is... Well, I think the problem is that Army Hammer is looks and seems much older than the age he's supposed well, he's, to be playing. Yeah, he's, like, 33 in real life, too. Yeah. So. Um, Timothy Chalamet is, like, 24, 25, but... Yeah. He looks... Like, Timothy Chalamet could pass for an 18-year-old well, and playing, Army Hammer... I think he's supposed to be playing 17. Like, 17, yeah. And, things and Army Hammer looks, and like... It's supposed Third. to be 24 and 17. But Army Hammer looks 33 and Timothy Chalamet could be 17. Yeah. Um, so, like, that's the one problem for me. But, like, it's everything else is raw and, and, and earnest and honest and messy. Well, that's it's weird. It's so messy is a really good word because it was one of these movies. There's at the bottom of my 20, there's just like a big 
cluster fuck of yeah. a bunch of movies that are kind of all the same where I just love them to the point where I don't know how to objectively look at them anymore. You know what I mean? Where I just, again, this Timothy Chalamet's spin move through those people, like after he puts that shirt on, is one of the weirdest, most thrilling film experiences I've had in like the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's nothing. But the it for some reason it's yeah. just it just does or the awkwardness of him playing the piano for um Army Hammer that Oliver, the, yeah. the, the, you know when he's playing the different variations on that song. Um I can't I can't look at it objectively anymore. And that's one of the things I tried to do with this list. Like th- there are certain things that I can't see objectively. I just can't. It's all emotion. It's all tied to how I feel about it. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and, and um, City of God and Tree of Life, I can parse out. I can parse out like the little details of it, but that's one of the ones that I can't. So um, my number six is a um, movie you just talked about in this hour is Hayao Miyazaki's 2001 film Spirited Away. Um, I don't, again, I don't know what else to say about Spirited Away. We've talked about it a lot. Um, it's where to go um i'll get it in a second um i think one of the things that i just it's it's the most miyazaki movie mm-hmm. if that makes any sense and i'm no well, have you seen the miyazaki filmography it makes sense well it just it combines all the things that kind of all the best parts of his lesser movies are like contained here just like in a different way so it's He's just taken everything he's learned and he's just... Or, well, he tried to redo it like in Howl's Moving Castle and missed it. Yeah. Um, Howl's Moving Castle is still good. But Howl's Moving, and even like um, Castle in the Sky has a lot of elements that are really interesting and has some really interesting imagery towards the end of the movie. But like the whole thing in and of itself is not really all that interesting. Um, but in terms of being the, like the most Miyazaki film ever, and that's like a really significant thing, it's like... It's you know, terrifying, you know, in parts. It's like, got this folklore in it, and we'll come back to this and like a little later in my list. It's, um, that seems like fully imagined, but also like weirdly eternal. Like it's just always been there. Like he didn't just make it up because some stuff he didn't make up. He's pulling from all these things, but he's putting it in this modern package and it's, but it still seems like spirited away has existed forever somehow. Um, but then on top of that, you get scenes that you can never have, like that no one else is going to make, that you're never going to see again, that seem like dreams that you had, um, fully realized, full of like Freudian metaphors or Jungian metaphor dreams, but that you weirdly get to go and watch like whenever you want. Yeah. And you get to relive yeah. the experience of like having that dream again. That's just, it's a, it's really kind of like a fascinating movie. Um, all right, I'm going to flip it. You ready? Mm-hmm. Tails. It is Tails. You go. Okay. My number five, you already talked about Claire Denise White Material, 2001. I expected that would be shown up. Um, this, it's fantastic. All the stuff we already talked about with it. Um, it is. Can it be the most Claire Denis movie? 
If this is if if Spirited Away is the most Miyazaki movie, no, no, no. I think it's it's the most like it's earnest. It feels like the most like Claire Denis without the happenstance. But here's what I think about the reason I say say about the Claire. Oh my god, we've been doing this for like four hours. The reason I say this is the most Claire Denis movie is because it seems like Claire Denis brings out the hours in us. Yeah, it seems like she's broken this the ideas in this film down to like their most basic state. By not naming the conflict and by not naming the country, we're just left with like a vague African country with a fairly vague civil conflict going on in between it. So the significance of everything that's happening here is based on very specific but seemingly minor things related to the individual characters in this movie. So like the specific color of her son's skin, you know what I mean, and his hair kind of relegates him to this even more secondary status than than she has. Her own identity wrapped up in this piece of land. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other characters, like the, the laborers, laborers, the laborers who come work for her later, um, when those women come out and they negotiate like a fee, it becomes about like a couple dollars. Or even the guys that stop her on the road on the way out of her plantation. You know what I mean? It becomes about $100. This whole conflict is broken down into these tiny little fractions of moments. Um, and Or these fractions of experiences. These fractions of things that... So by the end of the movie, to assert herself, she has to do... I, I suppose like the most grotesque thing which is she kills her father-in-law shitty she just chops him up um which is great but it takes that and that's in your trial now it takes that it takes that level of violence for her to fully establish her place in this world but by that time her world is fucking burned down you know what i mean um and then you get the great last shot of the film with the guy the 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 rebel he's escaped you know the repercussions of whatever was happening there um and he's got the boxer's hat on you know what i mean he mm-hmm. puts the boxer's hat on it's like the rebellion's about to kind of come through but it's just about the symbolism is in the hat it's n- not anything more than just this is this guy's hat and you've seen it and you've seen him wear it and you've seen pictures of it um and that's what she does best she gets underneath all the shit and she's able to say this hat is representative of like an undefined potential for a country you know what i mean just a, a, a hat she's the fucking best no the, <laughs> it's really i mean that i'm gonna be honest with you that claire denis episode kind of changed my life you're welcome thank you all the run I drink. <laughs> well, glad to follow that up with my number five. Tom, you know I'm a big fan of the satire, right? Naked Gun, on my pivotal list. Yep. You know, I love myself some Mel Brooks movies, Monty Python movies. But there's one satire to me that I think may be the best of the bunch 
and it's this one. And when I made this list, it kind of blew my fucking mind that this movie ended up at number five. It's old school. <laughs> yeah, you got me. It is <laughs> due date. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> you just made fun of that movie yeah. a while ago. <laughs> two weeks ago. Oh yeah, two yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, not three hours ago. I think we're in a time machine. Yeah, I know. Hot. My number five. Hot, hot tub time machine. <laughs> My number five is the 2004 film Team America. World oh, Police. that's awesome. Gary, I hate to break it to you, but the world is on the brink of disaster. World crime is at an all-time high. And the only thing standing between order and chaos is us. Hey, terrorists! Terrorize this! And just what does this have to do with me? Last week in Paris, we caught four terrorists with a weapon of mass destruction. We have to find out who sold it to them. Our only hope is to have somebody act like a terrorist. We need an actor. And they say you're the best. I've got five terrorists going southeast on Bakalakadaka Street. Soon every country will be in complete chaos. To save the world from falling apart. And so you see, the new world is inevitable. It's what? Ineb- inevitable. Um, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is one where I expected I was like Tom has no idea this is popping up. No. <laughs> uh this is just greatness in every way. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, it is and it's a time machine. Like talking about time machines, like its jokes are so in the post 9-11 evading war in Iraq moments, but they are still fucking hilarious. Yeah. They it is Without a doubt, like just just a, a, a pinpoint bookmark in time that exists in that moment, but it's still so relevant and so funny and so awesome. And oh my so god! So utterly incredible. Every single music number is tremendous. Yeah, this movie has no equal. Montage. <laughs> well, this, it's funny because I knew we were never going to be able to talk about this movie, and I was like, this. I'm so happy this popping up on the list. You should have found a way to kind of like reference it in some kind of text exchange where we were just talking about something else. And we were like, oh, Team America hunger f- or Team America. Um, so you could prepare like, yourself? Yeah, so I could have seen it. Um, no, this movie is incredible. I mean, and even, you know what's funny about this movie? And I was just, you know, we were talking about this when we talked a couple weeks ago about last uh, or Rise of Skywalker. We were just like, oh, Rise of Skywalker makes me appreciate you know, X movie more because they did it better, blah, blah. Team America makes me think less of movies like Anomalisa, which thinks it's so smart and cool with its, like, puppetry and its big themes and its sadness. And you, as a Charlie Kaufman guy. I love... I, I think I was... I was... Could not wait for Anomalisa, but I was fucking bored by Anomalisa. Um, but... The... The puppetry in this is used for a, a much more significant effect and much more important effect 
then it is an Anomalisa. Like, this is a superior movie to all other puppet movies. But maybe even all other comedies. I don't know. <laughs> Team America deserves, like, a rewatch by everybody. No, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, I rewatched it a month or so ago, and I just was like, all these jokes are still funny. Like, like I don't... There's not a lot I'm watching where I'm like, oh, I don't really remember that reference. Like, I still get all the references. But because they're not trying to be topical, they're just yeah. trying to be stupid. And yeah. stupid is always funny. Like, stuffing Michael Moore full of ham <laughs> to blow him up. <laughs> that always works. Yeah. It's never not going to work. And, like, the rent joke was already outdated by the time oh, that movie yeah. came out. But it's still hilarious because people know Rent still. And that became topical because they made a Rent movie like immediately after Team America came out. It's true. Chris Columbus. Oh, yeah. Chris Columbus directed that. He did. Why did people let that happen? I don't know. They're idiots. Why did they let cats happen? You ready? We got to see it. Yep. Go ahead. (laughs) That's awesome. I was hoping it was going to go in. (laughs) Be unfortunate. No, we stopped. We just oh heads, tails. Oh, um, I'll go. Okay, we'll, we'll snake it. Snake it. Snake. Speaking of great comedies of the two thousands, not the two thousand tens. This is a movie that we will be talking about in some time still, at least on my list. Um, it is. From my favorite playwright and a person who is now three for three for me in films. His newest film was not my favorite, but I still enjoyed it quite a bit. And his short film won him an Oscar. And this was a movie that got him an Oscar nomination. He's got a lot of Oscar nominations going for him now. It is uh, the 2008 in Bruges. What is it you've done, Raymond? Murder, father. Why did you murder someone, Raymond? For money. Who did you murder for money, Raymond? You, father. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. In Bruges. Which I I would assume you knew was going to be on my list. I forgot that this movie existed. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) You were like, really? Yeah. The movie that I talk... I mean, I talk about this movie... It's your movie. Excessively. The only other person I know that likes this movie as much as you is my aunt. Are we very similar people? Uh, I don't... What What do we say about this? Because we're going to go you deep gotta into this. You've got to tell me. you got to tell me what you want to say about it, Um, I, Once again, I talked earlier about In the Loop being what I felt was the second best screenplay of the past 20 years. And Bruges is, to me, the best screenplay. Um... It is. I, I I don't like talking about internet meme culture, internet like Reddit culture, but you can put a line from In Bruges in a film subreddit or on a film Twitter, and somebody somewhere is going to respond with the rest of the line to you, because it is eminently quotable. Um, you know, hey, don't you talk about my cunt fucking kids? <laughs> you know. Uh, I apologize about that, you know, just just everything about this movie. You know, people now see Colin Farrell as a great actor. Until In Bruges happened, people did not see Colin Farrell 
as a good actor. I don't think people thought, saw Colin Farrell as anything until In Bruges happened. Yeah, well, no, they thought he was Crash because he had like SWAT and Daredevil before then, and people were like, "Why is this guy famous?" It's just because he's somewhat attractive, and I guess has a sex tape. Was that it? Like those were his two big ones, like SWAT. There wasn't like uh, one Minority Report, right? Minority Report, um, and uh, Daredevil, and you know he just wasn't too too good. People are but then, dumb. But you know he hadn't impressed. At that point, like he was fine in Minority Report, but he wasn't. Well, I think he's he, hamming it up for Daredevil. You can't blame him for that, but he's not good in SWAT. But SWAT's like nobody should be good in SWAT. In Miami, what about Miami Vice? Oh yeah, Miami Vice. That was that 2006 movie. That, that's a movie I try to forget. Yeah, we all do. Collateral's not on my list. Don't worry. Oh, collateral. Could you imagine if it was in my top three? It's over then. It would slit my throat. Um, but he's fantastic. In this it brought Brendan Gleeson. To the forefront, like Brendan, like I think this Brendan Gleeson was already an actor, but this like established Brendan Gleeson has. It a gave major him another player. life, yeah, yeah. Um, and Ray Fiennes got to become a co- comedic actor, which is now kind of done now since yeah. then. Uh, and it, it introduced the world quite heavily to Martin McDonald, mm-hmm. um, who was already a playwright. I was in love with at this point. Um, like I looked forward to this coming out. Like his, you know, directorial debut was something I was excited for mm-hmm. because Pillow Man. If we're talking about pivotal plays, Pillow Man's my number one like play of all time. Um, the guy just knows dialogue. The guy knows how to capture nihilism as a person who struggles against not being a nihilist, ladies. Uh, like he 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 does that in in such a funny way and this this captures all of that while still being a closely human movie and Mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about that talk about this movie in depth in in a while Um, unless tom forgets about it (laughs) and i'm like my number blah 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 is and tom's like what what watch that in broge also really quickly though one of my favorite memories uh, as a big board game fan, is one of the, for some reason, common Reddit things that happens now is people play the board game Bruges in the city of Bruges while watching in Bruges, and they post it on Reddit at least, like, some new person posts it at least, like, once every three months, and I always laugh. Why does Reddit exist? Because people have to play the board game Bruges <sighs> in the city of Bruges while playing... In Bruges. My number four, Mario, asks equally big questions as why Reddit, Reddit exists. Is it social network? Because if so, I'm going to throw you out the window. <laughs> I'm throwing myself out the fucking window. <laughs> um, no, I saw... What did I see? So I saw something else where they were just like, oh, the number one movie of the decade was the social network. And I was like, come on. Guys. Guys. Stop it. Give me a fucking break. It's not even the best David Fincher movie of the decade. Oh my god, David! Uh, Gone movie Girl's is a better movie, and Gone Girl's not that good. It has Rosamund Pike in it, which is a net positive. Yeah, Rosamund Pike's never bad. It makes up for having Ben Affleck in your movie. <laughs> like I say, it makes up for and t- it's a good Tyler Perry performance. I'm continuing, I'm ignoring that, <laughs> and I'm thrown out the window. <laughs> Next thing you're gonna say, I really enjoy the novels of James Patterson. Um, who Tyler Perry portrayed Alex Cross in some shit hole 
adaptations of a James Matthew Patterson Fox movie. was the villain in that guy like jacked up for it and then people were like why'd you do that Matthew Fox I don't know he started <laughs> crying um, he's like can I also be in Rise of Skywalker and J.J. Abrams like no I bet Matthew Hobbit. Fox would have really liked to play one of the two lead roles in my number four and it is my advice. Martin Scorsese's 2016 film Silence Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts, then, both of you. And I must trust God has put it down. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. funny having this conversation now that the Irishman is <laughs> that the Irishman exists and it's also funny having this conversation when everybody is putting Wolf of Wall Street on their list yeah what the fuck you know what the best part of Wolf of Wall Street is I can't say it, it ends no I can't say it okay we don't have to talk about it um no best part of Wolf of Wall Street is just naked Margot Robbie but <laughs> um <laughs> you just time stamped it didn't you <laughs> 57 can let that stay. We can let that. All right. Um, this um, that movie sucks. Was a big deal. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't get Wolf of Wall Street, but that's and it's weird because I love Martin Scorsese and I love Leonardo DiCaprio. Like I love Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I just I find that movie like wholly unappealing. He's shooting like Martin Scorsese shooting a lot of blank. Like this was not a blank, but he's been shooting a lot of blanks recently. It's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. And uh, but it's. I don't know. Maybe we're just not... I think I Alejandro Gonzalez or Nutu stole his mojo. I think a bunch of people stole his mojo. I think so. a bunch of people do like a version of what he likes to do better than he does it. But that's, I think, why Silence is really interesting, because he kind of goes to a different place. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, what... It doesn't need, his, doesn't need that mojo. What is still here from Scorsese? You still get the classic Scorsese medium shot to devastating effect. I mean, watching Andrew Garfield or Adam Driver respond to anything that's happening around them or watching people drown attached to crucifixes um, or watching people burn on piles of, like, with piles of straw taped to them in that Scorsese medium shot is um, horrifying. And, but with what he has stacked on top of those things, it is... Um, insanely moving. I love reading the Armand White review of this where he says that Assassin's Creed has more to say about religion. The movie Assassin's Creed has more to say about religion than this movie. Um, which I think might be true if this movie was just about how to be a good Catholic or how to be a good Christian. 
the beauty of this movie is that he asks the biggest question that he can ask, which is not has nothing to do with Catholicism or Christianity. It has to do with having faith and what the value is of your faith. And what is not only what the value is, what the value is to your community, what the value is to yourself, what are the repercussions of your faith? What what is how do you have faith? What does it mean to have faith? Again, not just in Buddhism, as is portrayed here, not just in Catholicism, as is portrayed here. Um, it is faith in something outside of yourself, faith in any God, faith in any creed or dogma that insists on telling you how to live your life. Or to not even put it that strongly, that purports to guide you in the right way to live. And so you have this you have this incredibly brutal but amazingly moving, you know, first two and hours and twenty minutes of the movie. Then you have the end of the movie where Andrew Garfield, um, who is uh, you know a, a, a priest who is going has gone in search of his his teacher, uh, played by Liam Neeson, um, he resigns himself. He steps on a, a on an image of of Jesus and he resigns himself to living the rest of his life in Japan. Um, and then the movie ends with him holding a crucifix. His wife. Um, who was a Japanese woman who was a widow who um, he was assigned to marry. He has been doing this work um, of weeding Christian artifacts out of of shipments and things. Um, Even though the narration claims, which is a a brilliant narrative move from a a guy who likes narration a lot, um, to have this kind of like, uh, a, a European writer come in and kind of be taking notes and kind of dictating what's happening here at the end of this guy's life. Um, how he secretly, quietly maintains his faith. Um, it's it's an intensely powerful movie. It's an intensely moving movie. It's an intensely violent and uh, at times horrifying movie. But it all it all works. You get you know to wrap up to tie it to something we talked about two weeks ago. Um, Adam Driver can play Kylo Ren, but he can also play a, uh, a, a priest who is desperately trying to get these Japanese people to kill him instead of killing these other, drowning these other people by tying straw to them and then pushing them under the water with a large pole and just screaming on the beach for them to stop doing that and to do it to him instead while Andrew Garfield just sits powerless to do anything about what is happening. Um, it's kind of an amazing movie. And it's really... it's. Um, I find it very fascinating that he has bookended this film with Wolf of Wall Street and subsequently with The Irishman. Maybe his next film will be good. Maybe. Maybe we'll see. All right, you ready? Yep. Heads. Tails. Yeah. Um. I'll go. My number three is 2006 film by Guillermo del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth. 
You're looking at me because I think you somehow. Is it? Is it? My number three is the 2006 Guillermo <gasps> del Toro movie. Is it really? High five. All right. Because you know what one of my other two has to be. Also, by the way, thinking about this, you now know what one of my other t- top two movies. Of- oh, no. Does that kind of blow your mind? It does blow my mind. It's um, a great movie, though. It is a great movie. Um, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is kind of am- is is amazing. It's weird. My because two and one are gonna blow you. Like you're gonna be like, well, I had I had um, I had some weird feelings about Pan's Labyrinth after after I did a bunch of research in the Spirit of the Beehive. Mm-hmm. Um, in that a lot of people find Pan's Labyrinth very derivative of fucking assholes. of Spirit of the Beehive. But I think that's kind of the point. No. And I think when I was making my list and I was thinking about intentionality and I was thinking about craft and I was thinking about like the art of cinema, I wasn't sure how I could put Pan's Labyrinth any lower than here. It is a miraculous film. It is 100% fully realized new realm of existence tied to an a fully realized you know historical moment and yes that is something that kind of happens in spirit of the beehive you know what i mean we're working with the same period of history um we're working but it's not fully realized but it's not the same thing yeah. at it's, all it's they're both doing similar things but spirit of the beehive is grounded whereas this is creating a world in less than two hours uh this yeah. is a movie by the way that's we're going to talk about a lot. So this is one of the other ones that like two more times on our list. Yeah, uh, my number two and one are not on my pivotal list. One of mine is. So we should we move on? No, I, I just think like we talk like just this is an insane film that will be worth much conversation. And uh, I just really quickly, I, I had talked about performances in the past. Um, the two like kind of swelling performances and Sean Penn. Mm-hmm. And I'd said another performance was kind of there, and um, I'd also mentioned like Richard, like Peter Capaldi, but Sergi Lopez, I think, redefined what a villain would be with Capitan Vidal. Mm. Like you look at Heath Ledger's Joker. Like the one issue I always had with Heath Ledger's Joker for me was it felt like I was watching Capitan Vidal again. Why? There's just there there's a, a cadence and a nuance and a and a fun that's had with the evil to mm-hmm. it. So the the thing that always struck me is when Joker splits up, you know, oh, I only have a couple sp- I only have one space in this new organization, splits up the pull tape the pull cue and throws it in there. Like I looked at it and I was like watching that going like, Oh, this really reminds me of the sequence where Capitan Vidal is talking to the um and also, in the same way, uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Chigar mm-hmm. does a lot of similar things, too, where he's talking to the stuttering um, yeah. captive yep. and says, if you can count the three, I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make any sense for the character, but the character's just demonstrating that pure, absolute evil and, like, joy and evil, but mm-hmm. it's like a the chaotic evil. Um and that was like the first time you just see that character like fully realized on display and just like fully breathing it for no real reason, but just to breathe in that. Mm. Like I think like Sergi Lopez's Capitan Vidal is like the 
definitive villain of the past 20 years. Well, I love him because you don't 100% understand what he wants. Mm. He... He wants a kid. He wants a boy. <laughs> it's... Well, and that's... It's a perfect relationship. His character is a perfect relationship to the, gen, the movie in general in the sense that he's trying to establish a new history. You know, there's all that talk about who his father was and, like, knowing your father. And he is trying to... Um, reimagine his own childhood through this child almost that you know this this child that he hopes to have that he, he eventually does have um that Ophelia uh, eventually takes and it's about it's about it's a movie about folklore you know what I mean it's a movie about creating folklore it's a movie about um yeah and living like next to like Double's Backbone, which is another extraordinary movie, like those two just work so well in tandem together. Mm-hmm. Great films overall. Yeah. Ready? All right, we're at the last two. Heads. It is tails. <sighs> I'm going to guess you know what my number two is now. So. Mm, I don't know. Well, it's it's the movie I said was higher, The Pan's Labyrinth. So oh, I'll, you just put them in a row? Yep. Uh, and I, I think it had to be there. Um, one of the more divisive, I think, uh, Oscar results was when Pan's Labyrinth lost Best Foreign Film in 2006. A lot of people were confused because Pan's Labyrinth got six Oscar nominations one for three mm-hmm. didn't win score like it should have. What won score that year? Pretty sure that was Brokeback Mountain. Oh, was it? No, no, it wasn't Brokeback Mountain that year. No, it was the year before. Yeah, it would have been. It doesn't matter. So that would have been um, his next score for that would have been Babel. He won an Oscar for Babel. Yeah, it would have to have been Babel that he won for that year. Uh, Alright, you talk, I'll look it up I, I got this already Yeah, it won He won Santaliano won in 2006 for Babel hmm, Pretty good for him Really? Is it? I mean, that score stinks But that and that movie stinks I mean, you have uh, I, lo- I think he's you fantastic You have Navarte for um, You know, Pan's Labyrinth you have Clint Mansell for Fountain, and yet that we go with Babel. I think he uh, he's wonderful. I yeah, it does should not be Clint Mansell, but yeah. But one of the more divisive things was the fact that the lives of others won Best Foreign Film, and I would have to say that for me, by the skin of the teeth. Lives of Others is the better film. And Lives of Others is my number two. Hmm. Um, It is such a personal, close film with a incredibly, utterly vulnerable performance by Ulrich Mew. And this is, to me, one of the biggest tragedies um, kind of of the past 20 years of film is that, you know, immediately after this movie wins best foreign film, um, off of the back of his performance, 
Uh, he, he rushes back to Germany for an emergency surgery. Three months later, he dies from stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. And I think if he had not died, he would be like Christoph Waltz. He would have been the early Christoph Waltz. You know, this performance is just magnetic, and uh-huh. this movie is magnetic. Uh, Florine Heckelvon Donnersmark, um, the only now German director who's had a film since Das Boot with multiple Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. with uh, Never Look Away from last year. He had the cinematography yeah, and yeah. foreign language film. Still haven't seen Never Look Away, though. Mm. It's got Paula Beer in it. We liked her in transit. Yeah. We liked her a lot in transit. Um, so I'll have to give... That was, a, that was just the one that was hard to catch. Like, Never Look Away was just never available anywhere. Well, it wasn't available at all before Oscars... Before the Oscars even aired. Yeah. So then it just became, like, an act of, you know, attrition. Yeah. We're just like, can't do it. Um, this film, to me, is just... It's slight. It's so slight, but it's so personal. Um, it's really kind of accompanies a film that almost came on my list, surprisingly, but didn't in, 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 in its intimacy. And that's notes on a scandal, mm-hmm. the Judy Dench, uh, Kate Blanchett hmm. movie. Um, I, I love, I respond so well to those sorts of films. And the intimacy in this is just, it feels... Like, there's a closeness. It feels like you're not watching necessarily a movie, but it feels as though you're a voyeur. Mm. Um, and and it's, that's what, because he himself is a voyeur yeah. in this. And, and so you get that sense that you are looking upon him without permission while he looks upon others without permission. Mm-hmm. And it is so successful in creating an emotion without sort of pantomiming anything else. Like Pan's Labyrinth in terms of it being a cinematic experience, you know, blows most films out of the water, but in terms of intimately engaging and intimately evoking a certain emotion, Mm -hmm. lives of others does that Hmm. so realistically that it's an amazing work of cinema. It's, it's a film that requires study, that requires like perspective, mm-hmm. that requires looking at, because it feels as though you're capturing a certain emotional sense without ever really telling your audience or doing anything that makes your audience think that in any way. Well, I remember um, when this movie... I don't know how often you've seen this. I, mean, I, assume, I saw it the once. I, I assume, yeah, I assume time, you, yeah. you're not like... You, you probably weren't expecting this to pop up. No, 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 but... I remember when it came out, when or when it beat Pan's Labyrinth, and everyone was like, "What the hell is this?" Everyone right after that was like, "It's okay." Yeah, that makes some sense. You know, we're we're okay with this. Like it, Pan's Labyrinth won three other Oscars. Like we can give it to this one. This is a good movie. Um, yeah, I I I'd have to go back and watch it to kind of view it objectively in like relationship to everything else we've talked about so far, but. Um, I remember it being a fantastic film. Um, so yeah, my number two is the 2008 Kelly Reichert film, uh, Wendy and Lucy. Great dog, what's her name? Uh, Lucy. Your sweetheart, Lucy. Where are you going? Going to Alaska. Woohoo! King Salmon! You going to work? 
can't sleep here, ma'am. You can't sleep out here. It's not allowed. Okay. $50. You can pay your fine now, or you can come back for a trial with a judge. I don't, I don't, I don't live here. I mean, I'm just passing through. If you get stopped in another state, you're just going to end up right back here. Um, the what? Kelly Reichert? Wendy and Lucy? Kelly Reichert from... Watch, she did... Watch on, right? Old uh, Joy. Old Joy, yeah. Certain Women. I've seen Wendy and Lucy. You haven't seen it? I don't think so. I yeah, I watched Wendy and Lucy. Um, it's a it's a little movie. It's Michelle Williams and a and a dog. Oh wait, no, I've seen Wendy and Lucy once. We talked about it when I did old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I seen Wendy and Lucy. Um, it is. I feel like I just want to read from my thing. Did it? Um, it's almost one o'clock. You can do that. Oh my god. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, the moment that Michelle Williams as Wendy loses her dog, Lucy, her m- marginalization of society is complete. Um, she is in Oregon, this small, shitty Oregon town, because she's trying to get to Alaska because she's going to get a job working in a cannery, she thinks. Um, it is not the sleeping in her car that marginalizes her. It is not the stealing or getting arrested that marginalizes her. It is not even like her car breaking down and her being stuck in that Oregon town and not being able to pay for it and just kind of having to have conversations with Will Patton about like getting her car fixed that marginalizes her. It is the loss of the thing that she loves. The one thing in the world that she loves and that she knows loves her that fully marginalizes her. It is the thing that reduces this movie to one, not of circumstance and not of politics, but of emotions. Um, Michelle Williams is giving, I think maybe my number two performance here, if I had to rank them um, on a list, Oscar Isaac and then Michelle Williams. Um, And she is not asked to persevere against an idea in this movie or like symbolism or like a metaphor you know what I mean there's it's not like a Claire Denis film where there's like a thing and it means this other bigger thing and she kind of has to work through it um she is persevering against just like everything that we understand it's like perfectly normal things um it is if there is an element of like commentary about poverty or capitalism, it's just inherent to the story because it's how we live. It's related to how we live today. Um, it's cinematically simple. Um, I don't think there's like one overwhelming, like like amazing shot in this movie, but every shot of Michelle Williams is an amazing shot. Um, it it's. In its simplicity, she has made something like intensely complex, probably more complex than most of the other movies on this list, um, which is why it's number two. Um, she literally works with nothing else than like actors and a dog and a script and a town that like doubles as a set. Um, and in a situation, again, not to point to like the politics of it, but in a situation that millions of people in America are probably experiencing like at this exact moment. Um, 
like a lot of other movies that I've talked about, uh, we're getting closer to the experience of what it means to be a person for me, the emotions behind what it means to be a person, and this movie gets infinitely closer to that experience of kind of just stripping away all the film stuff. And so in the middle of this list, you just had a bunch of film stuff to get to a human a human feeling. And in this, we've taken away all the film stuff and all you're left with is human feelings. And it is um, one of the most powerfully sad. My list is a bummer. Your list at least has some fun things on it. My, my list is like a real bummer. And this movie is a fucking bummer. But when she finds her dog and it's been adopted by a family that lives in a house that has a fenced in yard and she knows she's going to take care of it. And she just leaves the dog there. She just leaves Lucy there. Um, she is doing the thing that I think probably lots of people have to do every day, which is simultaneously give up and like move forward. You know what I mean? Even if you know that that moving forward is to like a lesser thing than you just were, mm-hmm. um, it's it's so perfectly human. You know what I mean? And it's so real. And I don't want to say relatable because I fucking hate that shit when people are just like, I respond to this because I relate to it. Um, you can keep your relatable like garbage. You know what I mean? Um, you can think it personally, but you can't. Well, it's just, it doesn't make it better because I understand it yeah. personally. You know what I mean? What I understand personally here is that there is actual real human emotions tied to this stuff. And yeah. it's um, it's completely fantastic. Um, this is it. This is it. Are you, are you ready? Yep. I'm flipping. I know you're number one, I think, already. <laughs> Heads? Tails. You want me to go? Or you want to go? I'll go because it's... Did you? Is yours new? Yeah, it is not on our pivotal film list. Like there are. My number one is There Will Be Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. Then you will be cast up as the rest competition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please! I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. 
Paul Thomas okay. Anderson, 2007. Um, <laughs> I was just like, when, you, when I was like, I haven't heard there will be blood yet. Yeah. Uh, this list, uh, I'm going to read straight from my thing. This list began with a brief examination of intentionality. I tried to order my list, not so much by which films seemed the most in line with the stated created vision, but movies that expressed a certain considered artfulness. Despite all of my efforts, I could not find a film that did any of that better than There Will Be Blood. Every detail, every aspect of the film could uh, seems as if it had been considered to death. But rather than stifling anyone's creativity, it heightened the power of the craft to an almost insane fucking levels. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano are doing crazy person stuff. And I was one of these people, like, when I first saw the movie, I fucking hated Paul Dano. I thought he sucked. But I've come yes. to realize... Little Miss Sunshine just made you mad. What? I, I, I am an anti-Little Miss Sunshine no, no. human. Me and you are um, both that Little Miss yeah. Sunshine people. I, everyone's a little essential. Okay. I have come to realize that Paul Dano's um, seemingly terribleness in this film is probably totally intentional. Where he is supposed to seem totally unhinged and unreal, so Daniel can seem that much more real and make him that much more terrifying. Um, I think the weird thing about this movie is that the script is fairly... The script is very good for what it is but it's also fairly like workmanlike in the sense that it just kind of moves from scene to scene to scene but and it it, it needs to because there's so much logistical stuff happening it needs to the script when it's not just dialogue when it's like you know moving the scenes along there's probably there's a lot of exposition going on like what is happening here now this is happening now this is happening now this is happening Without Daniel Day-Lewis attached to this movie, this movie doesn't really work at all. But Daniel Day-Lewis takes this script, and even if he's not saying anything, lights the script on fire every time he has to do anything. And it's just seething with this kind of weird rage. And, I mean, we're going to talk about this so much more when we do our list, but you get this kind of weirdo, like, sick birth of the universe, or the, the Earth like in this movie mm. where when the earth starts it's just rocks and then there's a guy with dynamite and then by the end of the movie you have this fucking mansion you know what i mean with a bowling alley and all this other stuff and it almost seems like it's the seventh day now and like the world is fully realized and it contains daniel plainview in this mansion who is not god and he's not adam and he's not like cain or abel he's like some weird amalgam of like all of the human beings most aware instincts of itself you know what i mean because he is the one that has no pretension he's the one that has no ideas about like who he is versus who who he wants to be versus who he is he's always knows who he is the whole time um and at the end of the movie we happen upon a fully realized world and then paul dano comes in to fuck it up and he beats him to death with a goddamn fucking bowling i'm finished and the most stanley kubrick scene that has been produced and stanley kubrick made um you know i don't even want to say eyes wide shut but like you know a stanley kubrick movie that whole last bowling alley scene is so stanley kubrick and it's funny because no one would have looked at paul thomas anderson to that point and said like oh paul thomas anderson is aping stanley kubrick and i don't even think he meant to i think he just filmed this scene and it looked like stanley kubrick it's fucking great it's all great stanley uh, or um 
Stanley Kubrick is great. Stanley Kubrick is great. Um, the Johnny Greenwood well, score. <laughs> Johnny Greenwood score is great. Paul Dano ends up being great. Um, <coughs> I love this movie. I'm deeply emotionally attached to the the, the general nihilism and um, fatalism, really misanthropy yeah. in this movie, um, which is. You know, I still find vaguely terrifying that, like, when I first saw this movie, I was like, "I get it." It's like oh, I no. totally see what he's saying. <laughs> I'm I'm on his side all the way. Um, but there, there will be blood as a work Give of. Give me the blood, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Not even that. It's when he's having that conversation with his brother, like, at that that bar or whatever. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he's just like, "I see no goodness in anybody." And you're just like, well, I know everyone needs to do a Daniel Plainview. You have to, you have to. But I was like, I also see no goodness in anybody, Daniel Plainview. Me too. It's like, wait a minute, I need to think about this. I just want to go into the woods and find someone sleeping in a sleeping bag and shoot him in the head and then bury him. And I feel like it's just the next step. But I'm, I'm trying not to use my emotional things here. This is a work of art. No, no, I, I said it. I, I, it's, right, exactly. I don't like it a lot, like much at all, but. It's, you know. An interesting thing to do would be to get like a, a a full warehouse gallery and put every single shot of this on like a still frame and just put it against each other, and you'd be like, half of these shots, you'd be like, well, what the fuck is that? Holy yeah, but it's, shit. it's one of those movies that like every shot, every frame's a painting, like an old YouTube channel. Yeah, like most of this movie's just a work of art. Well, imagine that. Imagine that art like installation where you have every frame listed, and then you have like the movie, this audio movie playing in the background. You know what I mean? Like you'd be like. This would be the worst thing you've ever heard, but like in an awesome way, mm-hmm. in a way that like haunts you forever. Number one, Mario. Oh, I want you to make three guesses. I don't have any guesses. I've make used up all guesses. my guesses. Make some guesses. No, I'm not gonna guess. You just tell me. I will tell you this. I've had three films from. I said I had three films from 2017. I've named two of them. The Florida Project? No, you said not the Florida Project not earlier. The Florida right? Project? No. You said Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. And... Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. Um, darkest Darkest Hour? My number one is The Darkest Hour. Is it really? Could you imagine? No, it's not really, is it? <laughs> no, you seem like you're being very serious. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you would launch me out that window, right? <laughs> I'd go home and my wife would be like, how was recording? Like, I don't even know. I don't think we're doing it anymore. I think this Um, is it. There are movies that, to me, change the stream, as it were. That that are the dikes in the river Mm -hmm. and open up pathways and doorways to a new film. And when I saw this movie, when it came out, I didn't think it was going to do that. I didn't think it was going to do any of that. It just it just was a good, entertaining, really well-done script with a great leading performances and in a genre I, I respond to. Um, but in the years that have followed, in the past, in, in, in the following two years, there has been films that have been released each year that feel as though they have a thread uniquely tied to this film. And as we get away from this movie, year by year, I feel like it's a seismic shift and a seismic change in auteur storytelling and in like presenting an idea that the world maybe 
I don't, I don't want to say the world wasn't ready for yet, but that opened up the doors to being able to say this because people were willing to hear it finally. Um, my number one is Jordan Peele's Get Out. You got your toothbrush? Yeah. Do you have your deodorant? Yeah. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know? Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bruh. Meeting families and taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. Uh, this movie is so utterly layered and nuanced for me like like uh, on the on the first level it's 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 a eminently entertaining horror film and you know if you've listened to this podcast you know you make a horror movie and mario's like i like those movies <laughs> and i'll watch them uh but i come back to this each and every time and there's something else there like even beyond like the separating the colored fruit loops from the milk like those simple things but everything has a nuance and everything feels carefully considered and that's not what's great about it what's great about it is the fact that those things are carefully considered because it feels like it was important to jordan peele mm. it feels like everything that was being said was super needed and then since then, the following year, you're like, sorry to bother you. You get Last Black Man in San Francisco. You get Us. And these films kind of express more of those ideas. Mm -hmm. And they're ideas that like kind of the zeitgeist hadn't really had a conversation yet. Like, it, it, and I say this as a white person, it felt like white people explaining the issue and not really ever really getting it. And mm -hmm. re I still don't get it. But movies like this opened up the door to like finally kind of understanding how ineloquently we handle race relations still. And eloquently how we like treat everything. Um, it, it kind of really felt like a pivot. Mm. And since then, things like Story to Bother You and Last Black Man in San Francisco feel like a continued pivot or, you know, like, like Jordan Peele felt like he, he like S S Steve McQueen was kind of already doing these things, but Jordan Peele felt like he, he more touched the world in as a whole. Well, Steve McQueen was was doing a Waltz with Bashir type separation between subject and art. Mm -hmm. So by making everything the most beautiful it can be, by making everything so high, like high brow, it was, and having been attached to two predominantly white films before 12 Years a Slave, mm -hmm. he wasn't speaking directly to 
African American issues or African American feelings, and maybe even being and it wasn't. He's not African American. He's African English, right? English, so. So exactly. So even in Twelve Years a Slave, there is an outsider's perspective of it, where it's it's being. It's funny. I'm reading this book about narrative craft and about memoir and about um, analysis and how you know how in in a lot of writers' workshops that use the term show, don't tell. Mm. But in a lot of um, memoirs written by um, African-Americans or uh, minority writers, Hispanic writers, um, Asian-American writers, show, don't tell doesn't really work for them because show, don't tell is working on the premise that everyone knows the same stuff. Yeah, You know what I mean? And so those people are coming from a perspective where um, they have to make every doesn't matter. Um, they know different stuff, and their Jordan Peele is working on the assumption that a different assumption that Steve McQueen's working on, where this movie is for people that know this stuff, and if you can, if you are white and you can catch it, that's cool. But like this movie is for people that know what this stuff is. Yeah, there's there's like you. I keep watching videos on Get Out. Like the fact that I just can I feeling... stop you real quick? I feel like we've never had a conversation about Get Out. In the same way that we've never had a conversation about Twenty Four Frames, I feel like we've never had a conversation about Get Out. It's just it like it personally doesn't hit me, but like it's just it's yeah yeah. yeah. I it, I think it's just the most important movie of the past twenty years. Yeah, you've been watching um, videos, okay? Yeah. Um. You know, I I, I watch and I just. I don't get it yet, but like I, I kind of get it because I feel like that change. Mm. Like no other movie since I've really been a major fan of movies has felt like it's had this like really significant change in the culture of filmmaking. Like in terms of what people are making. Like everything, not everything, but but a lot of films feel like they're being made has kind of there's an opening now for that film to exist in this like post get out world. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like there's, there's, there's a, a line of films that I think existed you're right. after get out versus that didn't, ex- that wouldn't have been made before get out. Right. Um, and it's, it's just creating this. And like, it's a, it's a genre of film. I respond to a lot. Like every year I'm like, yep. sorry to bother you in last black man in, in San Francisco and all these movies that are coming out. Uh, I think even to an extent, like something like farewell, um, doesn't really exist without this happening? Um, it's possible, yeah. I, I mean, I, this, is, of, this, is, this is complete speculation on my part, yeah. but it just oh, I think feels like it. I, I think you're right. I think it does feel like it. I think that something was broken open with Get Out. I think my problem with Get Out is that I don't respond in the same way to that um, genre of filmmaking. Mm. So when he, when Daniel Kaluuya pushes a an antler through Bradley, through Bradley Whitford's body. My instinct is not to go like, awesome. My instinct is to go like, holy that, shit. That was too fast. Yeah. Like, I don't believe he would have done that. You know what I mean? Huh. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm always the wrong person to comment on horror movies. You know what I mean? Because again, because my number 
my least favorite my, movies number, of the year. Your number one is a horror movie, and it's, it's some way. Uh, <laughs> psychologically terrible. But um, it's. I think you're right. It was a movie that I considered, but I couldn't get close enough to it. In like inside of it to say definitively like this was better than like anything. And else. that's the thing. Like I keep watching like these videos on it, and like you see like these things like Jordan Peele put into it that are like a commentary on some aspect of the history leading to it uh, of you know African American relations or of you know it, the, the th- like every single thing is just like a, a new sort of realization, mm-hmm. and and they just end up being kind of Easter eggs. But the nuance and care that's put into doing that shows that it's, like, eminently important. Well, and, and it says that as, like, a voice that wasn't being... I don't know how to say a voice that wasn't being heard, but it's it's a voice no, that needed right. to be expressed. Yeah. And to have that much energy to express it kind of suggests to me that it wasn't being heard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the response to this, it ends up being one of the most profitable films of the year, which says that there was a seismic change in a, in a necessity for a film like this to exist. Can I ask you a question? And you might not be able to answer this, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. How come do you think Get Out does this and Moonlight doesn't? Or do you think that Moonlight doesn't? Do you have a comment on the Get Out versus... Because Moonlight is the year before, 16, right? 16, yeah. I don't... I think Moonlight maybe touches a creator to, to make a film. I, I think Moonlight is important. I don't think Moonlight reaches the audience. Mm. I don't think Moonlight... Moonlight doesn't green light. And I don't mean to say that as like a pun, but Moonlight doesn't like yeah, get, I get these it. movies made, mm-hmm. funded. Get Out does, in mm-hmm. a way. Get Out, you know, allows... There to be feelers for, like, create, like even some, like, crazy rich Asians or something like that. You know, it, it allows there to just be this, like necessity to like not necessity but uh, this interest no, to, to right. make money no. off of it well that's and there's I, there's money because of get out there's not money because of moonlight and i think Moonlight's just a prestige movie and even though moonlight made a bunch of money comparative to what or relative to what it cost and relative to what other movies like that have generally made um but i think it's the same thing with i think it's the same thing with spider-man into the spider-verse i think a lot of people criticize the idea and like especially like our our best friend armand white criticized the idea that it's um, you know, it's a product. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not an honest. It's not an honest film because it's attached to this. Um. In in, in into the Spider Verse is Marvel. In 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 Get Out, it's like the horror genre. You know what I mean? It's not like a serious. It's not like a serious film. It's not making like a serious statement. But I think, for a lot of people, it like you said, it felt like the the rat like the signal that said like oh it's okay to do this we can do this mm. we can actually make these movies and yes they're part of a, a a commercial system you know what i mean but they're still repre- they're still not representative of anything that's been seen on like this stage yet yeah and that is like v- very significant no, I, I think I think this movie sets the course for the the next decade. You know, like sets the course for sets the course for at least a genre of film that, mm. that's to come. Is there um, a specific scene in it that like always that like that like gets you, or like that you kind of like respond to? 
the talk like like his like Catherine Keeter the the um hypnosis scene mm-hmm. where like Daniel Kaleo who's just fucking a monster of an actor like that guy's gonna be he's younger than me I think that makes me sad he is young he's much younger than me just turned 30 well he I mean I just um um but like when he's like talking about his mother you know and all that um and just like fucking that and like the horror like that's one of the more horrifying things is like realizing like the, the creation of like that sunken place idea is like yeah. perfect really realized like existential horror to an ex- like super extent yeah and like that's the that's the thing i respond to and no like it's just a really good horror movie beyond everything else it's doing <laughs> mm. even though it has steven root in it it's well that's great too it's i like, don't want to be like, mad at steven root it's not well, that's a great thing too. Is like, is it's like, it's like even it goes like what us would eventually do, like going beyond like the race issue and like just talking about like kind of like the wealth disparity. Where Steve Root doesn't care that he's black; he just wants he's a wealthy guy. Yeah, he's a poor guy who has a good eye for photography, and he just wants that eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good twist too. With with uh, Allison Williams being revealed as the villain, where she kind of just pulls. It out, was a good twist. She pulls out the keys and goes, found him. And I also wonder, I, I've always wondered if Allison Williams' casting was um, purposeful as well. It's just upon Brian Williams as a human well, being. Well, no, just the, the idea that like she's what girls seem to represent to people. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was, you know, the kind of millennial, like overprivileged white girl, like just kind of living in the city and like all of her problems being magnified to like the nth degree. If, if Jordan Peele was like, oh, I'm going to get her. Because she's already represents the thing that like I'm commenting on, that yeah. you know these people are just you know white and overprivileged and you know think they can do it anything they want. Um, awesome, get out, get out, and there will be blood, folks. That's it. Get out, there will be blood. That works. That works. If you have any films and you think we didn't have on our list. And want to tweet us? Are you Riley Reed? And want to tweet at me? <laughs> four for four. Uh, you can tweet at Film Pivotal. Uh, or you can I go did it, by the way. I saved the last one. You did. Her. You did all four. Um, or you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and uh, see a list of these movies. I almost, got- did, I almost ended up doing my top four porn stars of the decade by the names I listed. Although I'd replace Riley Reed with, with Lexi Bill. No, oh, okay. But Great. I didn't end up doing five. Those are just random words you were saying to me. <laughs> I don't know what any one of those mean. Ladies. Um, one of us is clearly married. The other one is not. <laughs> um, we're going to post blurbs. We've, or we have posted blurbs, like some writings on, on our feelings. We posted films. our last ten last week. Yeah. And, uh, um, we'll, we'll now be posting the top ten now. And then for... we'll post... I'll, I'll try to get. We'll post them on the. We'll post them on the feed, and we'll post them in the um, essays and lists comment uh, section as well. If you're looking for it, or and, you can go. I think that's it, and you can subscribe there, and you can see lists of the stuff, and yada yada yada. And guy, our girl from Tennessee, get ex- guy, our, our woman from Tennessee, get excited. Next week, we're going to be talking about Oscar nominations. It's coming. Oscar ketchup. Oscar nominations so, and a bunch hope, of and a bunch of really good movies. I hope you're excited to. Uh, <laughs> Listen to us 7,000 times. <laughs>
hey, they're keeping us relevant. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you to everybody, uh, and we uh, will see you. Have hope your New Year's been great. Yeah, and uh, watch some movies, drink some beers, and we'll talk to you uh, when we talk to you. <laughs>